Hello everybody, Jeremy Graves from Anime Limited here, welcoming you to this Scotland Loves Anime 2015 special of the Anime Limited podcast. Just wanted to give you a little introduction before we get to the show proper, because this episode is very much different from the norm of what we would normally bring you for a podcast. It's not Team Anime Limited gathered in the office studio talking about upcoming releases and such, no, no, no. This was recorded during the Edinburgh leg of the Scotland Loves Anime Film Festival. And what we did was gathered all four of the jury members for the Judges Award. We also had Jonathan Clements, who is the jury adjudicator. And we also had Andrew Partridge, who is the film festival director as well as the president of Anime Limited on hand. And we got the judges to discuss all four films that were in competition for the Judges Award. Those being Expelled from Paradise, Project Ito's Empire of Corpses, Miss Hokusai, and The Case of Hannah and Alice. And we really wanted to get their thoughts and feelings on record as to what they thought about the films that ultimately led to them voting the way they each respectively did to crown the winner of this year's Judges Award category. Some very, very interesting discussion on each of the films. Spoiler-free discussion, I should add, so you guys will get a real kick out of this, regardless whether you have seen the films or not. And that discussion goes on for about an hour, maybe 70 minutes max, I'll say. And from there, as one of the judges this year was Justin Savikas, who many people will know from AnimeNewsNetwork.com, the Anime News Network Answer Man column, their podcast. He's also heavily involved in DVD and Blu-ray authoring for quite a few companies when it comes to anime. And we really wanted to talk to him in depth about his career up to this point, his experiences in the American anime industry, because obviously vastly different to what it would be over here. And part of the part of the, the career discussion, if you will, with Justin, was actually covering the fact that he was involved in authoring DVDs of hentai releases in the USA. So as we got onto this subject, we, we weren't just going to gloss over it, we do actually go into detail, probably, probably far more detail than I actually thought this could have gone before we hit the record button. So I'm putting this out there now, this is an official not safe for work warning when it gets to that section of the podcast. If you go to our blog, blog.audianime.com, I'll have the exact time code for you there. The discussion total from when you hear it is about 13 to 14 minutes in length. So it's, it's not that long, really. It's about 15 minutes total, if you will. So once it gets to that part of the discussion, and you'll know when it gets there, because it's pretty much said plain as day that we're really going to talk about this. Okay, let's do it. Fast forward about 13, 14 minutes if you don't want to hear it. But I will say for the record, some of the stuff that Justin says is pretty flipping flabbergasting. So you probably will want to hear it because you won't actually believe what is being said and how certain things were being thought of. So it's very, very interesting. But when it comes to the discussion on his career as a whole, it's some of the most fascinating discussion we've had on the podcast. And I think you guys will get a real kick out of it. When it comes to our next proper podcast, all going well, I'd probably say within the next week or two, give or take. And we'll be discussing all of our recent announcements, because there's been quite a few of them. We'll be previewing our next event, which is the Birmingham Comic Con. Lots and lots of stuff to talk about, so please be on the lookout for that. And in the meantime, I'm going to stop waffling on and enjoy this edition of the podcast. Oh, and I should note, this entire podcast is uncensored, everybody. We all made a collective decision to leave it as it was, mainly because to censor some of this was probably going to be more effort than it was actually worth. So this entire podcast is uncensored, uncut, however you want to phrase it. Just like to throw it out there. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of the Anime Limited podcast, coming to you live to tape 
at Scotland Loves Anime 2015. I am Jeremy Graves from Anime Limited. I am joined uh, technically in the kitchen, lounge, studio. Not, not, it doesn't look nook. like a kitchen. I don't you. know, it's early. It's we, the nook. We are not in the office studio today. And I am joined, as per usual, by Mr. Andrew Partridge. Hello. Who sounds so happy to be here. And today we have some special guests because we have our judges from Scotland Loves Anime, and of course, a man who lots of you have been requesting to have been on the show, following past lives escapades involving myself and other podcasts, Mr. Jonathan Clement. So I shall let everybody introduce themselves accordingly. Big up your bad selves. Uh, I'm Jonathan Clements. I'm the festival jury chairman today. Uh, I'm Claire, I am also a judge, and I'm the lay judge, so hi. The lay judge. I'm the lay judge. Yeah, as in like I'm 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 the voice of the audience. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. What did you think I'm? <laughs> I'm the lady judge. No, I just can't pronounce the D's. I just drop my D's and everything. I'm the. I'm, I am a lady judge, but I'm also the lay judge. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm another one of the judges, Gary Marshall. I'm an animation director. Um, uh, I'm another judge, Justin Savakis uh, from Anime News Network and uh, Media OCD, the predominantly anime authoring house. So, Scotland Loves Anime. It, it's practically in the books, Andrew. We're, we're in the final day. Obviously, not trying to jinx anything that could potentially happen later. But, uh, but how, what have you thought about the festival so far, Andrew? Because, to say the least, ticket sales have been great. It's been a stacked lineup. Feedback's been great from people. What are your thoughts? Oh, it's been a very busy year. We've sold, basically, sold out of everything. Um, we have made a lot of people happy. Uh, we've screened more films than ever before on premise. So obviously I'm not satisfied just now. We could have done better, I'm sure, in some capacity. But no, anything which could have gone wrong so far has been dealt with in a smooth and efficient fashion. So as ever, the, the people coming to see the films don't notice a single thing. There was one film, actually, interestingly enough, where we discovered only three hours, four hours before the film began, that it was playing with English audio and subtitles burned in. Um, to which we were like, oh, that's not, that's not good. And amazingly still, it's possible to fix, fix, now we have DCPs, it's easy to fix these things through a simple patch. So by the time the, the cinema goes got into that or that screen, it was in Japanese with English subtitles burnt in. Now, if we'd had to go the opposite direction, then we'd have some trouble. Cause <laughs> you could have just dubbed it just, yourself. I can see you nodding, Justin, <laughs> you yes. know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> it's, because if you had to go in the reverse because subtitles are burnt into the video, you would have to basically create a whole new package or to act out the film in front of the stage. Which we can do one year. Could I be think. fun, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure we might have to one day. Sometimes some of the close calls you get with films. It could be one of the mystery films for future years, perhaps. <laughs> Interpretive <laughs> dance, you're actually It's an actual <laughs> mystery even after you walk out of it, basically. <laughs> but no, otherwise, happy. How do the judges feel? You've been in actually more of the screenings this weekend than I have. I've been in a, like, spot, spotted throughout the, the two weeks, but... Oh, let, let's, let's put Justin on the spot here, because, oh, because he's, you, you've, you've never been a judge before, you've never no. been to Scotland Loves Anime before. I've not. So there is presumably some differences which are not necessarily good. Um, <laughs> but what, what do you make of it all? Well, the audiences are... Oh, oh there's the doorbell, that's the last judge. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully not there. Sounds like the name of the book, The Last Judge. That, that, that'll be Chaos Tangent John Knoll arriving. We'll, we'll introduce him when he gets here. Sorry, Justin. Okay. Uh, well, the, 
the audience is so much more polite here and quiet. <laughs> it, it's it's really interesting because you know I'm used to the super rowdy anime nerd crowd in the states, and you know you do you have so much as an attack on Titan screening there, and you know people are just screaming, and you know, ev every little thing is just this giant event, and it's fun. It's super rowdy, but uh, here I, I feel like people are actually paying attention. But they exploit the traditional Scottish clause of they're, they're very polite in person, and then immediately afterwards on Twitter they're like, Jonathan is a fool! We don't like him! <laughs> Never again! They complain to everyone but the actual person. Oh, no, they, 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 they put the, uh, the... Andrew's referring to someone who's complained that people were laughing at the Attack on Titan live-action movie because of the way I introduced it. That's the only and, reason. No other reason. That's the only reason why they're laughing at it. It's not because it's terrible or anything. Um, <laughs> Uh, and and so uh, yeah, but they, they did actually put this the loves animation uh, Twitter tag on there. They they wanted you to read it. So so if you if you want to ignore that, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I'll, I'll read it out to the audience oh. at Dragon Ball. <laughs> like I say, I was going to respond to it with yes. Well, we agree he might be a fool. Yes. <laughs> the actual Attack on Titan live action film. We we programmed it on the premise it might be a comedy. For those of you watching in black and white, the final uh, judge has arrived. If you'd like to introduce yourself, sir, and let people know who you are. Uh, hi there, I'm John, uh, also known as Chaos Tangent Online. I've written an anime blog for about six or seven years now. So. Yeah, and we've been reading it for six or seven years, which is why, <laughs> which is why we invited him on as a judge. Because, because the thing about the Chaos Tangent blog is that and there, there have been many years when the only historical memory and the only record there is of what happens at Scott and Ross anime is actually on your blog. Um, <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah, and sometimes I actually have to go and read your blog to find out what I've said. Uh, so that, that, that's, uh, but, but we've always been very impressed by it and uh, Andrew suggested you as a judge and I thought it would be great to actually have someone who is uh, who, who's been coming as a punter for? You've been here for four years out of five. Haven't you? I think so. I think I missed the first year and I missed last year as well. So yeah, I've been uh, been a few and, times. And what is different for you, if anything, about coming here as a judge rather than as a member of the public? Um, oh crikey! You can, you can mention the free food. <laughs> <laughs> you can um, mention the strippers and the blows. <laughs> Um, I mean that's all wonderful, but I think it's uh, it's great speaking with people who know and love anime. So. Oh, you found some. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I met up with somebody who I followed on Twitter for quite a while now. So that's always good. So it's a good sort of nexus meeting place for meeting people online who ordinarily you've just got a handle and anime girl avatar. Um, mm. But otherwise, yeah, it's it's great to. Do what I would do normally, which is being judgmental about films. So. <laughs> and did anything surprise you about the negotiation process in the, on the jury last night? We were well, I, I, I was, we were in a restaurant, um, which, is, which is what we normally do. We got the we got the jury drunk, which is how we like to operate. But was there anything about the process which struck you as odd or interesting? Uh, no, I think the opinions were very much of my own. It was again, it was good to hear other people's takes on it from an animation side of things which I'm not too familiar with uh, from a business side of things and other other areas that I don't usually look into because I'm usually story focused and sort of general enjoyment so if I came out enjoying it then that's usually a good sign and I won't try and pick it apart but Otherwise, yeah, it was uh, it was great. Well, you were actually one of the less judgmental people on the uh, <laughs> yeah. jury. You and me were the nice ones, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, and we were all like, you know, there were a couple of films where we were like, yeah, that patch for us. You're like, I didn't think it was that bad. 
But Claire, but Claire, you were the one who went into one of the films saying, I'm going to hate this. No, I did. I was in a terribly bad mood. I'd been in the, despite the fact the festivals have been brilliant and Andrew's obviously been great, I'd been in the cinema since 1pm and I hadn't eaten since the morning. I was so grumpy. And it was a mark of how good that film was, um, Alice and Hannah, the murder case of Alice and Hannah, that I, I went in really not wanting to find anything good about it. I came out like, dang it. Right? <laughs> I, I, I felt very much the same way about it. It's the, the case of Hannah and Alice um, and... Um, I had no expectations whatsoever going in. I thought I'll sit through this because I have to know what happened. I bet it's going to be terrible. And it was frankly my favourite film of the festival. Yeah. Uh, I was I was very pleased with it. And if we're going to go through the films one by one, we might as well start yeah. with Hannah and Alice. Mm-hmm. Um, would anyone like to explain what happens in it? Not you, Andrew. <laughs> he, was, you, Andrew. He, was, he was going for it there. <laughs> Well, Gary, <coughs> you want me to explain the plot? I do. I do pictures. You're here for the comedy value of, of, of an animator trying to explain stories. Oh, it's always good. Yeah, this is this is true. I get put in this by hate pitching things as well. Uh, Alice and Hannah. Uh, it's a lovely story about two. It's Hannah and Alice. Hannah and Alice. <laughs> yeah, that's getting it right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a lovely film about two fourteen-year-olds who's. Uh, interesting take on the world and their place and it leads them to a series of misadventures in Tokyo. Um, it, it's an interesting film as well because it's live action, rotoscoped, which uh, made it uh, quite a topic of debate on the night, though everybody enjoyed it and mm. didn't seem to be a problem. I mean, I genuinely thought that there would be, there might be a problem with even letting it into competition mm. because, it, you know, it, it, it only looks animated, it's been drawn over, but that is a policy that the animation business has followed for 70 yeah. years, so... <laughs> there, there's, even though only a couple of them are fully rotoscoped, there have been rotoscope shots here and there, yeah. plenty of anime. <laughs> I didn't mention last night, I, I did sit in the jury for... Um, uh, Scottish BAFTAs a few years ago, and there was a motion-captured animation film that was that was thrown out immediately by the jury oh. on the basis that it was motion-captured. Oh. And it was an animation, which was... I was the only person on the jury who went, oh, no, really good. Hmm. Um, Can you tell us what film? Uh, it was... These were shorts, so oh, okay. it was a trailer, it was the Dead Island trailer. Okay. Which oh, was great. absolutely a brilliant yeah. piece of filmmaking, uh, just an amazingly effective piece of filmmaking, and you know, it turned out it was apparently a very <laughs> tedious zombie game into a multi-million seller. Yeah. But, but on the basis that it was motion captured, it was just not really, it was considered not even to be animation, so it's definitely an area of debate. At the uh, Education Day, which is part of Scotland Loves Anime, Jared Taylor, who was the, uh, the convener of the various panels, in the Q&A session, he went into one. He went off the deep end yeah. about people who distinguish between 2D and 3D mm. and who throw these things out uh, without consideration. He says, you know, animation is using any tool in your toolkit to make the film that you want to make. Yeah. Uh, and what really annoys him is is the, the schools now, which will say they're going to teach you 3D animation, and they only teach you Maya. And he says, that's not teaching 3D animation, that's teaching Maya. That's not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and he, he would like people to be more honest about that. And he would also like animators to accept that Stop motion is part of it. Storyboarding is part of it. And to storyboard, you need to be able to draw. Well, that's what I think, anyway. Um, I've, seen, I've seen some storyboards that look terrible. Um, I drew them, so it's little stick men. Um, and he says, you know, uh, 2D and 3D uh, animation is just part of it. There is a huge panoply of tools that are involved. Uh, from, from my own personal experience uh, as an anime historian, the, 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 um, the 
the Japanese Animators Union defines the process of animation as only being the halfway point on the construction of an anime. Mm. They say, you know, you've still got dubbing, you've still got marketing, you've still got, you know, after effects and yeah. uh, and whistles and bells to stick on things. Yeah. And, they, and these are all part of the process. And, and, and these people, uh, and adding the music is part of the process of making an animated film. And all these people qualify as part of the industry and should be considered and, and you know given their due. No, no. no. But, Don't want so, yeah. but what about uh, um, Hannah and Alice? Did it do what it was supposed to do? Uh, it, well, I thought it did. I think we all did. Um, I, I think it's. I think it's. It's also from an animation point of view a very interesting film because it it, it draws your attention as an animator or possibly an animation audience towards how it's directed and how it's framed because it's using live action filming all the way through. Mm. So, especially sitting, and that's again an interesting thing about doing a festival or being the, being the judge, is that you're watching three films back to back in a way that I would not normally do <laughs> on any given day. <laughs> Surprisingly tiring sitting in a chair for a little bit. It's a bit like being on a long distance flight, actually. Yeah. Somebody's slightly stunned. Yeah. 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 But you've watched four films well, anyway. The in-flight <laughs> screen is a bit bigger, but it's the same principle. <laughs> Justin, uh, you, you mentioned something about the body language in the film, which is a very different from the way it looks in traditional animation. Oh, yes. Um, well, what I was mentioning last night is that when... Normally in anime, what you get is a very astute observation of body language by the director, by either the director or the animation director or whoever did the storyboards. Uh, you get you know close-up shots of a hand just twitching slightly. Um, you just you, there are little character moments that are built by the creative staff, and that takes the place of acting in live action. Um, it's essentially the directors or the animators acting for the uh, characters. With Hannah and Alice, there are actual good actor, uh, actors doing that work. And as a result, it's not a case of one thing happening at a time as it normally is in anime. Um, and you know, one thing being emphasized and very in your face. There are little things happening all the time that might slip under the radar, but just really add to the life of the scene. Um, and it's it's interesting like someone might be talking for example and the other character might be just quietly spinning in place or you know they're just looking off in the other direction while while something is happening that they deem to be kind of bullshit or something hmm. um, and it, you can see those micro movements going on yes exactly and that's in the course of animation animation being the art of throwing away anything that doesn't isn't absolutely necessary for a scene uh, I feel that sometimes, and it's rare, but sometimes something's lost there. Uh, and this, I mean, it's a good counterexample of just filling out that world just a little bit more, especially in a in a film that the story really isn't paramount. It's almost there as window dressing for just a kind of overall world building experience. Now, I've been at the other end of this. I, I wrote the script for a, a game called Halcyon Sun, which was entirely rotoscoped uh, for the for the human animation. And um, you can see that the, the other characters in a particular scene are standing around bored. Um, so they're, they're just waiting to say their line. They're not actually acting, they're not performing. And, and that, that really was quite, um, uh, it's quite jarring to the viewer to see. And what you get in, in um, Hannah and Alice is, is, is that they're on they know they're on camera all the time and they are acting all the time. And there is so much more data 
coming across in the human movements, which is something that rotoscoping picks up, which uh, in, you can do it in traditional animation. Uh, I mean, I, I see it a lot in Pixar. Pixar are very good at this kind of thing, but that's because they've got huge amounts of money to mm. spend and they will tweak every single pixel in the scene. Yeah, the um, I mean, lately some of the Disney stuff, like actually in Frozen, just some of the eye movement is is incredible in that way. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's important to note that Hana and Alice is by quite a famous Japanese direct, live action director uh, uh, Shinji Iwai, and it's a sequel to a live action film he did. Uh, it's a prequel. It's prequel, a prequel. I'm sorry, prequel to a live action film he did some years ago with the same cast. So yeah, these are live action actors, a live-action director who are really kind of used to everything being seen in that way. Mm. Uh, so. and, and, the, and the girls in it, I mean, the, the characters, Alice and Hannah, Yui and, and Suzuki, who are now 28 and 30 years old. Um, and, and so, you know, with the best will in the world, playing a 14-year-old girl is, is going to be a stretch for them, but this is a fantastic way of, of, of doing that. It, it doesn't look like those shows where you've got a bunch of middle-aged actors pretending to be teenagers. Uh, not that 30 is middle-aged. I'm middle-aged, trust me, I know what middle-aged is. Um, and I think that works very well as well. And, but the thing that struck me about it as well is, is, is how great their voices are. Oh yeah. I did. I did the intro in Glasgow, and I and I said, I, I, you know, I've seen some clips from this film. They've got wonderful voices. They are not these these squeaky Japanese girls that you always have to put up with. They are realistic teenagers, but they have personalities and they have this kind of great thing. And then, and when the film started, the first girl that that. that um, that the lead runs into has got this terrible. It's awful. Oh god! I wrote it down in my book. Like no. And I was thinking, oh my god, is this the other lead? Because if it is, I can't. I've just been a complete idiot on stage. But uh, so, but luckily, she kind of disappears after yeah. a while, oh, and, 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 yeah. and and I think she's deliberately there to set up. This is how you know teenagers are presented as these these glorified children. Mm -hmm. But actually, what we have here is kidults. They are yeah. they are on the edge of adulthood, and they've got these very overactive imaginations. Everything's a drama. Yeah. I mean. There are so many setups in the film which are these sh moments of schlock horror just about to begin, or these conspiracy theories, or these terrible affairs that are just about to kick off, <laughs> and none of them happens. Everything in the film is completely benign. And there's one moment where, where one of the characters says, this is like being in Totoro. <laughs> and, and the thing about Totoro is, is that it's about two girls who wander around for a bit and nothing bad happens to them. <laughs> and, and, and there is this concept in Japanese which the government is trying to push at the moment as part of their tourist regime, which is called uh, omotenashi, and it means kind Kindness for kindness's sake. And you've got these two idiots who wander around Tokyo in the middle of the night and there is a passing, all these kind passers-by and these indulgent strangers like the taxi driver who takes her somewhere and doesn't ask for any money, uh, who makes sure that they are never in any danger. And, and when, they, when they went to sleep underneath the truck, I thought, okay, this is where most anime directors would would, rat, we would just run them over and uh, uh, bring them back as zombies or something. But no, that, that didn't happen. And that was another great thing, is that it kept on threatening to turn into this sensational thing, and it never did, and that was great. Yeah. There's really not a shred of darkness to the whole thing. Yeah. Hmm. It says something about us that we were just sitting there expecting it the whole time. Like, <laughs> it's going to be the moment that it. Oh, thank well, goodness. you did see it. You, you did see it straight after Empire of we Corpses. <laughs> um, oh, it was so needed after that. Yeah, was, we were like, wanting the world to end. It was that such point. a balm after Empire of Corpses. Uh, and Empire of Corpses uh, being another film in competition, um, which was uh, based on uh, the last work by Project Etor, which was only 30 pages complete when he died, finished off by Torwin Jaw and turned into uh, a steampunk epic about a young Dr. John Watson um, 
uh, investig- uh, on the trail of Frankenstein's notebooks, trying to find them in a in a in a Victorian world which um, is full of zombies, in which the the role of the underclass and the subaltern is taken over by by all of these uh, reanimated corpses who are slave labour for this kind of steampunk empire. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this film was a, was a, not a bit. It was. A mess. Uh, it was very well animated for most of it, anyway. Uh, the look of it was very, um, very distinct and very striking. Um, unfortunately, the plot does. I mean, it is so muddled and confused. They can't even keep straight if, if uh, John Watson's a doctor or not. <laughs> let, let alone other very important plot points. And by the halfway point, I think all of our brains, uh, going from what was said last night, were in you know emergency shut off mode. Uh, just from sheer, you know, I don't know what's happening. I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> what did you make of it, John? Uh, it it has a wonderful concept at its core, with the idea that corpses are sort of your heavy lifters, the people who do the dock work and things like that. And there's a lot of there's a lot of ideas in terms of uh, things like uh, Jewish mysticism with the idea of the golem and they're putting words into the corpses' heads. Um, it's obviously very, very pretty, but I think, as everybody said, it kind of just falls apart. It it wants to do all these different things, so it wants to have John Watson looking after his friend, it wants to have Charles Babbage's analytical machines, it wants to have Frankenstein's monster, Frankenstein's bride, and he kind of throws it all in and it just doesn't work and it all just ends up a bit sparkly at the end and nobody <laughs> really knows what's going on. <laughs> it is very silly how many historical figures it tries to cram in there that do not belong, some of which are fictitious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like they'll, uh, they'll mention, you know, um, what are a couple of examples here? Oh, yeah, Ulysses Grant turns up. U- uh, Ulysses Grant and uh, Paul Bunyan. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Someone thinks Paul Bunyan's real. Yes. Um, and uh, in fact, the, no- the novel goes even further. I mean, Rhett Butler's in the novel, but he- he's, a- he's a very popular occurrence in, um, in Japanese steampunk because in-, in Gone with the Wind, Rhett Butler's made all of his money by gun running and it's never specified where to. But if you look at the, the-, the year that it's supposed to be happening in, the only place he could have been running guns to was Japan uh, during Japan's <laughs> Civil War. So the Japanese love that, this idea that Rhett Butler would be. But he's not in the film. Um, I don't want to mention who turns up in the post credits sequence because <laughs> although it's very difficult not to talk about the film without mentioning it because the, the post credit sequence completely transforms what the film is about for me and it completely it makes it a very different it makes it a setup for a TV show uh, in a way that the rest of the film isn't mm. it um, is grown into the same yeah <laughs> I mean I, I, I believe were they grown I mean I didn't see it in Edinburgh so I don't know what, how the audience reacted when that turned up uh, the audience were not happy from about an hour and a half into that movie, yes. and I was I was trying desperately not to pay any attention and just focus on the movie because that's what I was there to do. Unfortunately, I was in a row with some of my closest friends, mm. and there I can just hear them going, "I'm like, guys, no." And at one point, one of them just went, "Oh, well, you just f off," and I was like, "No," <laughs> and I was like, "We've still got an hour of movement, come on." So yeah, I don't think that. Well, it might just be my friends are really grumpy, but you know, the audience did not enjoy themselves. I don't think there might have been a few that did. I mean, I think I think I liked it for longer than everybody else. It's not an endurance sport. No, I wanted I mean, to like it, and I had no, to give up. I think I think I mean I'd, I'd go back to you know the, the, the opening premise that Frankenstein is a real is a real character and 
then the, the larger that's the so Frankenstein is also fictional we should mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Al- and also yeah. said they're not actually zombies but this is the big problem this is, and Claire identified this I didn't even pick up on it but I knew it was in my head resonating <laughs> badly at the end of the film which is that they're not actually zombies they're all Frankenstein's monsters basically the, mm. the, 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 the reanimated, the, the reanimated corpses, corpses right. which are all suspiciously young so I'm wondering where they got all these able-bodied corpses <laughs> to reanimate to be, weird, to be the it? army so but then towards the end of the film, they become zombies and then they bite people and they become zombies. So suddenly it's like, hold on, this wasn't actually, what I liked about the film beginning was these aren't actually zombies. And then suddenly they were. Yeah. So those sort of things, but it was visual, I, I mean. I didn't film, notice that either, Claire had to point yeah, out. It's because I pay attention to zombies because I hate zombies so <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, from, uh, from, an, from an anime fandom point of view, maybe, for I, think, I mean, I think it was very beautifully made. I would mm. recommend people watch it. If you're interested in anime design and, mm. and, and production design, it's, mm. it's extremely, a very, very good example of that. And it's also an inadvertent spin-off from, from Anime Limited as well, because Ryotaro Makihara, the, the director, got his London uh, location hunt done while he was over for an Anime Limited event. And in fact, Bethan, Bethan Jones, our secret weapon and interpreter of choice, had to show him around London. Mm. Uh, so he would take photographs to kind of do London research. So you're a lot of responsible for this. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bethan, let's blame Bethan. Blame Bethan. Don't blame oh, <laughs> We don't blame you, Bethan. We don't blame you, Bethan. It's all right. Come back next year, please. Uh, one, one point of uh, clarification we should make, though, is that while the animation is mostly really, really good, there is a certain point at the climax where it things take a turn. Yeah, so badly. However, there, there, I mean, we also know that there are some politics behind the scenes on this, mm. uh, in, in that there are three Project Ito uh, movies in development in Japan, and this was supposed to be the third one to come out. Uh, but the, the previous two have hit various snags, including, in the case of one of them, Manglobe actually filing for bankruptcy protection a month before they're supposed to finish it. So I'm not sure whether or not we're looking at someone running out of money or someone rushing to finish to meet certain deadlines to, to, to bail out their colleagues. It could be both. It's anime, so yeah, probably. <laughs> well, it, it, it is a disappointment. It could have been a lot better. I think that script needed about eight or nine more drafts. Mm. I certainly went in uh, to the festival, not having seen any of the films in competition and before Glasgow, expecting Empire of Corpses to be the real contender um, because the, the premise, the high concept is so brilliant and it, it's such an exciting prospect. And I thought this is, a, this is an opportunity for Japan to do steampunk properly and, and that will cross over out of the anime world into the science fiction world. You know, this, this is looking like a real winner. And it may still be because there were audience members in Glasgow who said it was brilliant. It was mm-hmm. the best thing that they'd seen. And I was sitting there in between them thinking, well, were we watching the same film? <laughs> <laughs> were, they, were, were they Fujoshi? Uh, no, no, they were... Um, the, the, the there's home, some real Fujoshi pandering in this I, film. I, I did not... I mean, I was, I'm probably quite dim. I didn't feel any homoerotic elements in the film about his quest to reanimate Friday. Uh, Friday, who, who incidentally, Friday's white in this. I mean, if he's supposed to be the Robert Louis Stevenson Friday, uh, they, they've painted in the wrong colour. Yeah. Um, but uh, the final line of the film proper, is, is, um, I'm not giving too much away here, I think. No, I think uh, you're okay. Um, it, um, uses a, a, a phrasing in Japanese that implies that him and Friday are, if not lovers, then they plan to be. And the, and it's even worse. <laughs> but, but well, I mean, yes, let, let, let's take the, the necrophilia out. Yeah, of it. please, <laughs> take it far away. I, I don't know, but but legally, if it's two corpses having no. sex, does that mean? Okay. Um, Stay away from fan fiction. Not yeah, okay. Today, 
Also, that'd be really awkward. It would be quite logistics. Let's just let's not go there. Well, too late. Wouldn't be. We've 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 already. Andrew walks back in, and the tone lowers. There it goes. There it goes. I live to to speak like a. But but actually, the final line of the film, not not the post credits code, but the final line, actually changed for me a lot of the what goes on in the beginning of the film. Not in any way to make me want to watch it again. But but it actually did make it you know one percent more interesting. Not that it got any votes on the on the jury. Empire of Corpses was one of the films thrown out before voting began by by jury consent. As was Expelled from Paradise, directed by Seiji Mizushima. Uh, formerly of uh, Full Metal Alchemist, Conqueror of Shambhala. Now, really, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was his the whole, thing. Oh, the whole original series. Actually, oh, well, yes. Oh, yeah. in, in terms of in terms of introductions, uh, if someone does TV work, that's just background noise for me. Uh-huh. It's when they move into features is when they suddenly come on the radar of a film festival. But Full Metal is so good. <laughs> and, and I think you know he, he did he did Full Metal Alchemist as as a film, and they go okay, well now you can do an original film. Let's let's set you up in the original film. Let's see if you can make that jump in the same way that Mamoru Hosoda made that jump in the same way that Hayao Miyazaki made that jump let's you know work on something that does not have any background and see how it works not well <laughs> <laughs> it's true like the only movies he's directed before that obviously are spin-offs so he did like yeah. Gundam 00 yeah like and, and, and this is this is a script by again Urobuchi who is very highly thought of uh, both both within the critical world and in fandom was <laughs> as one of the best writers anime's got um, and uh, and yet Expelled from Paradise would anyone like to try and synopsize Expelled from Paradise I won't make you do it Karen. go on Claire go on have a go okay I'll give it a go um, Expelled from Paradise is a movie set in the future post-apocalyptic standard kind of you know sandy planet you know everyone who wanted to leave has left you know but with the added twist that people who've left haven't just left the planet they've also left their physical bodies and basically become digitised. There's a digitised society. They, in li- space. they live in a big hard drive in space. Yeah, basically a huge big flash drive in space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they live in the cloud. Yeah. And there, there are still humans on Earth, but they are, they say, I think it says in the movie there's something like 10% of the population of Earth, or maybe even 1% is left mm-hmm. on Earth. And um, the movie starts with a, one of these digital people whose name is Angela, I believe her name Angela is. Balzac. Angela Balzac. Angela, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's just call her Angela. She's, um, she's trying to track down someone who's been hacking into this digital world, which is called Deva. Deva, Deva yeah. yeah. And, um, and in doing so, that leads to having to take on almost a, a, meat, shoot, a meat suit and go to Earth and yes. try and find them there. So someone from Earth is hacking into Diva with... Yes. With... with, with, with uh, Ridiculous un- un- success, yeah. With unwelcome marketing messages. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, basically... The, the, <laughs> They're pop-up ads the, coming the, through. The threat of the film is spam. Yeah, um, it's or, pretty bad. But, but after a while, you realise that the, the authorities in Diva are very worried about the, the prospect of this spam. Um, and so they want to send her down to deal with a frontier setter who is the... the Who's I mean, David doesn't want a few more inches. They want. They're happy where they are. But they don't want anyone else to get that. Yeah, I mean, just aren't any that is a concern. Them. A few more yeah. inches of what, Ram? Yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, that's that's the setup of the movie. Yeah, and when she goes down to the surface of the planet, she has to cooperate with uh, a human um, agent. So apparently, although civilization has collapsed, people can still buy jeans. They they still have money. They can still go to noodle bars. Uh, so it's one of these half-hearted anime apocalypses where everything's still <laughs> going on as before, but there's more sand. Mm, so um, sand. People, so <laughs> people. Um, uh, but when they uh, when they run into the uh, the the evil hacker, which which you know could sound like, and in many ways the setup is not dissimilar to Ghost in the Shell and artificial intelligence has acquired sentience and started trying to you know, interfere with things and monkey wrench things um, the, the film takes a sudden turn it takes a right angle turn mm. <laughs> I'm looking at you like you can you explain what it is I you would be giving away the film to yeah, say. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, fine, fine. Spoiler, let's, yeah. let's not go People too, might want to watch it. Let's not, let's not go too spoilery there. Trying to persuade them of that. Oh, I don't... To be honest, me and John, I think, are in agreement on this and the fact that um, it wasn't as bad as some judges thought it was. We, I, I, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. I, I was sat... Afterwards, I was just like, yeah, actually, that was all right. But nothing kind of, like... It was a bit shallow, you know, yeah. no peril really, nothing like that. Coming from Urobuchi, I mean, he's done, he did Psychopaths? Psychopaths, right? but he also did Guilty, no, he was partially involved in Guilty Crown as well, though, so oh, right. he has yeah. a, a lot of like, this is what always confuses me about people going, but he's a, he's a, he's, he's a master, even like, the, like, maestros and such have off days on a committee <laughs> system where you're being, Beaten with a bloody stick, being told to I turn something people, uh, There probably weren't many people turning up for the screenwriter, no. but though, but those who would have done would have turned up, as as Justin just said, because yeah. he wrote yeah. Radical Magica and because he wrote Psychopaths, yeah. um, but both of which are very highly regarded for their scripts. Yeah, no, no, I, like I agree completely, and I, like it's always baffled me because the amount of output. Like he's done. If you look at it like on paper, and you you don't go in from the perspective of someone who is just idolizing those two works, mm. you realize there's a f there is less chaff than a normal screenwriter. To be mm. fair, like in the anime space, I, I but there's with, still quite a bit of chaff. Uh, with Psychopaths, it seems that he he has science fiction chops. He, yeah. he's yeah. Done oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. is really good at that. Almost everything he's done is science fiction or, or fantasy. Yeah. yeah. So it's very strange how with Expelled from Paradise he seemed to just chuck everything in the kitchen sink in. There's the core idea that is very nice with the mm. with the virtual people and mm. the AIs and mm. how they're different to the natural people living on the mm. ground. Mm. And that idea is good, but then they sort of chuck it away for somebody in a skin tight suit chucking around in a mecha. And it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's visually very nice at times, but. Well, if it was only that, that wouldn't be such a problem. There's plenty of, you know, I mean, let's face it, Ghost in the Shell has lots of unnecessary, you know, outplaying of, of Major Kusanagi. But what this film does, it's so info dumpy in a way that we normally only get with really poor light novel adaptations. <laughs> Even though this had no original source material, I mean, you have just ex paragraphs and paragraphs of expository dialogue. Of people talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, uh, and like explaining things that they probably already know um, in a way that that's, it, you know, even slightly demeaning in a way. Um, it's just, it, it's so over the top and so unnecessary and it really, you could delete half of that dialogue and it would actually work better and touch nothing else and have a better film. There's also a point in the film where the, where the human characters um, start to uh, argue that life isn't so great uh, on the hard drive in the sky. 
Um, but there's so little that you see of the hard drive in the sky, and what you see of it seems quite realistic. Um, so, but there, there's a moment when they, they, they point out that, that not everybody has the privileges that our lead character sees. But we don't actually see the people who don't have those privileges. Mm. We see her living in this fantastic you know, uh, virtual reality world where she can sunbathe. So, I mean, there is this haptic sense that you know, it's got touch and it's got taste and it's got smell and, it's, and uh, it's, it's not presented as a bad option. And then suddenly, halfway through, they go, oh, actually, it is a bad option. Um, it's and, and, and dystopian because they tell us it's dystopian. It's dystopian yeah. because they tell us. And, yeah. and, and if you're going to do a dystopia, it shouldn't work. There should be a sense of discovery, I think, in the audience. When they, when they, I think the audience should realise a little bit before the characters that maybe something's wrong. And that mm. doesn't really happen in this one. You, you're told by, by the characters that you should be rooting for a particular side. Uh, although that side does change in the film. Yes. No. I <laughs> The imitation of the moral code. Yeah. Moral code. Moral Sorry, code. I thought Andrew was signalling at me to shut up. No, the whole reason we do it is it's an interesting insight into how judges interact and such. And like, like there are positive points to everything, but it's important to understand that there is an actual selection process beyond. Absolutely, just, I like that. And it, that, it, it, the worst possible situation that we could be in is if we had four fantastic films to choose from. Oh, I mean, we, we, I mean yeah. we've approached that sometimes. I mean, this yeah. year, I will say that. I mean, by the time this goes out, everyone will know what's won and what happened. The, the, the judging this year split five to three. Um, among uh, the votes available um, and so we had a, a clear winner but there was a debate but it was basically between two films there have been years where the judging went seven to one there have been years oh, that was when you were there Jeremy yeah. in fact you were the one you were the dissenting vote <laughs> Jeremy um, yeah. uh, there have been years when the judging was unanimous um, so um, I, I, I'm very pleased with a five to three um, score um, and, and the score went uh, three votes to uh, Hannah and Alice, and the remaining five went to the last film in competition, which is Miss Hokusai. Mm. <laughs> I love that film yeah. so much. <laughs> me and Justin were just like, yay! <laughs> uh, it was very tough for me. I, I, I came very close to splitting my vote. Mm. My, we, we were allowed two votes each, uh, and I was very close to splitting my vote between uh, Miss Hokusai and Hannah and Alice, but I, I, at the end, Miss Hooks, I stole my heart. I, it, it, that, that movie is really something I, special. I think you said that it stole your heart as you were summarizing it mm. at the table, and that yes. you, you, you had every plan of splitting it two ways, and then you realized that you were feeling. Yeah, uh, I was, I, I was like thinking about this, uh, this one moment at the end, and like my voice cracked. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this one ends. Um, and, and it really did come down to, to that because if, if the votes had been split equally, I would have had to cast a vote. And I would have voted for uh, Hannah and Alice. So it, it, it really came down to about ten seconds at the table um, before um, uh, before the decision was made. But so Miss Hokusai, what's Miss Hokusai about? So Miss Hokusai uh, is about a um, the grown daughter of a very very famous painter Hokusai, um, and her name is Oe, and she is nearly as good as her father. And they live together in this kind of squalid uh, apartment, um, you know, with their assistant coming uh, coming by and spending the night most nights. Um, and it's just their daily life. Uh, the, the work that they do, uh, their interactions with their town uh, in Edo, uh, you know, Edo period, uh, Tokyo. And, you know, their uh, hoax size wife lives separately. It's implied that they're 
separated or divorced if they had divorced back then. I don't know if they had divorced. Um, and you know, there's also another daughter who is uh, a younger daughter who's blind and uh, very ill. And it's you just see the moments of um, Oa's life as she uh, she deals with her ill sister and her parents and their difficult relationship and uh, the possible guy that likes her uh, from town. It's just kind of this slice of life sort of thing. And it's a really immaculately painted slice of life because there is so much detail put into the fine little corners of what it was like to live in uh, Edo. It was really very immersing in that way, and yet there's not really a whole lot to point to in terms of story. It's interesting what you say about um, detail, because I actually got to see this movie twice, and um, I was looking for it the second time. <clears throat> when um, OA is hanging out with Onao, her sister, there's a very marked difference between their skin tones, because OA is obviously around town, carrying drawings around, she's off across the bridge doing chores, Onao is often indoors, you know. But it's interesting as well, because obviously pale skin was attractive back then, so you see OA getting ready for a, for a night out, and she paints her skin tone basically to match the same as her sister's, so I thought that was very interesting, because obviously normally she wouldn't care, but at this point she's like, no, I've got to look my best. Well, Oe is not a traditionally attractive character. She has I don't Frida... think she was designed that way. No, she, very intentionally, she's very much a tomboy, she's got Frida Kahlo eyebrows. She does. Um, and she's just not, you know, she's clearly, she talks like a, a guy, you know, she uses <laughs> male, male, very masculine speech, um, and it's implied that she's not exactly a sensual person. Uh, the, there is a really amusing scene where she realizes that she has to be able to depict sensuality a lot better to be able to draw sensual things. So she goes to a um, a brothel and tries to have an experience, <laughs> and that doesn't really end the way anyone would expect it ends. It's definitely an experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not an unstandard experience. <laughs> just a few minutes more. I mean, uh, you, just in your mention detail, it's not just visual that the details in; it's in the audio as well. I think through the old daughter being blind, you focus in a lot on the audio so there's a scene on the bridge that is almost entirely devoid of dialogue and you just sort of soak in all the different sounds that are going on mm -hmm. around them and then there's a period after that where they're on the boat and it is it's a film that can really draw you into that period even though it is just animation really um one thing i wanted to ask actually the original japanese title is uh sarusubeti yeah uh what does that mean it means crepe myrtle and it's the plant that's growing outside their house oh. um it's, it's also the symbol of hokusai he would he would kind of draw a crepe myrtle sometimes on these things so it was a deliberate decision by the director to retitle it with the, the miss hokusai title uh and and that's why i i i pressed him about it in glasgow when he was here because uh, you know, I spent a lot of the film. There is a definite narrative arc for the little sister, the blind sister. Whereas uh, the story of Oe, who I mean, both of them are real historical characters. We don't know very much about them, but we know certain tiny snippets about both of them. And Oe's real story is really recited over the closing credits. She she doesn't do anything in the film itself, and then she says, "Oh, and by the way, after this, I did that, and I did this, and I did that." Um, her career as an artist only really begins at the end of the film. Um, and uh, I mean, historically speaking, there's only about a dozen paintings that we know she did. Um, one of them is Night Scene of the Yoshiwara, which is the, the, the 
the picture that actually shows over the over the closing credits. But there is a great suspicion in the Japanese artistic community that she, but as her father got older, she was taking on more and more of the work that he takes the credit for. And as I say in the festival brochure in my article about her, the thing is, is that if you're a museum who's invested in Hokusai, the last thing you want to admit is that this is a fake by his daughter. Even though, um, I mean, if you've seen Night Scene at the Yoshiwara, it has this incredible sense of of light. Uh, it, it's a night. It is a night scene, um, and there's fantastic shadows in it, and you can only see certain elements. The colour's fantastic. She clearly had great talent, um, but. It was in her interest as well not to tell people that she was drawing works that were signed Hokusai. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a controversy that is only really um, revised in the fiction world because the world of art critics don't really want to discuss um, what uh, OA may or may not have done. On that note, Gary, artistically speaking, what did you make of this? Uh, it was it was it was brilliant actually, and, and I, I was a real struggle in terms of judging it. Uh, I ended up giving both my votes to Hannah and Alice just because I thought it was a terrific film and a very interesting uh, style and and, and you know, departure for that kind of for this sort of you know, for for anime. But uh, Miss Hokusai was um, was just utterly charming and and beautifully crafted, which was very fitting for the subject matter. I think it would have been. Uh, you know, I, I, it would be a terrible, even a terrible disaster of a film if they hadn't put so much effort into the design of the character, the, the look of it, and the quality of the animation. Just the observational animation, going back to what we're talking about, the details with the background characters, and something like Hannah and Alice. Again, unlike maybe cheaper or more mainstream anime, there was a lot more uh, attention to what background characters were doing. I was noticing when they were in the. Um, Red Light District, mm -hmm. all the animation of the different customers looking at the geishas uh, behind the bars mm -hmm. and what everybody was doing was very, you know, it was all going on in a way that traditionally in anime there'd be a lot of still drawings mm -hmm. <laughs> and the main characters walking through. I mean, utterly I, I charming bits like they, the, the, the dog, the dog that grows up, that's a lovely mm -hmm. thing, uh, yes. film, you know, yes. and the bit where it's sleeping with the assistant and the mirror <laughs> poses, it's just <laughs> beautiful. Uh, it, it's full of really adorable things and it's very touching <coughs> as well, it's just, it's just beautiful. Masterpiece, uh, and, isn't and it? what about the way it depicts uh, the daily life of an artist? Uh, no, that's that's terrific. Yes, because uh, <laughs> nothing changes, does it? Let's <laughs> face it. Uh, the constant toing and froing to the publishers was brilliant, because of course they earned their living from prints, which would be printed the publishers as editions, I assume, mm -hmm. uh, at the time. Um, and and so and the fact that obviously the money doesn't really flow back to them if there is money involved in it at all, because they live in such squalid conditions. But then um, Hokusai is clearly one of these artists who just lived to draw and so didn't really need anything else. Um, uh, so that's uh, there's a point where they say all we need is a brush and two chopsticks. Yeah, it reminded me of that. Four chopsticks. Yeah. Four oh, chopsticks. It's two brushes. Four chopsticks. Two, two brushes. Yeah, four two chopsticks. All right. I watched no, Obviously, I would be a very bad yeah. artist. <laughs> I'd I'd a bad mathematician. One chopstick. Two. <laughs> I, I thought to that point that there were <coughs> incredible parallels between the life of um, OA and the life of an animator. Um, that basically. They are working all the time to the great, you know, peril of their personal lives. Um, they don't make very much money, uh, and you know, they normally don't have any control over what they they're being, what's being demanded of them in terms of uh, uh, art. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, they kind of live their lives, kind of in deep observation of the world around them, just trying to absorb everything, and that that's what makes them 
that's what gives them their skill. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, nowadays we don't have to worry about being beheaded if we miss our deadlines, which is alluded to at one point in the film. You've obviously never worked for Toho. <laughs> I'm sure they'd bring it back if they could. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it made it very, it made it feel very contemporary. On which you note, know, there's a brilliant use of music as well, which we noted, music, yeah. uh, with uh, with a mixture of contemporary music, uh, rock music, and and more traditional music throughout the film, just to keep bringing you back to the fact that these are real people. And it's, it's, you know, they're the, they're the same as us. I mean, she is absolutely, every animator, every artist will watch this film and totally identify uh, with the characters. You know, there'll be one of those characters in there. You know which one you are. <laughs> are you the hacker? Which are one, you, are you, are which you one do you associate with? <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you the little dog? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. drawing pretty girls in uh, undress. <laughs> yeah, I think I definitely struggled with that. So that, that's, that's probably it's probably not my, no. I think I think it's that usual thing. Like you want to, you know. You, um, I think uh, uh, Chuck Jones had one uh, the, the, the every morning he'd wake up uh, feeling like he was a Bugs Bunny, but he looked in the mirror and he realised he was Daffy Duck. So <laughs> I think that's the thing for artists. You, when you watch that and you and you project, you, you know, we'd like to think we're we're her, so we've got that noble intention. Uh, mm -hmm. But more often than not, by the end of the day, you're the assistant getting drunk. <laughs> there, there are there are moments in the film where they allude to actual works the Hokusai, the, the, that Hokusai that do exist. I mean, for example, you mentioned the scene in, in the Yoshiwara, the the brothel quarter, that actually evokes her own painting of mm, the Yoshiwara right. as she walks through it. Yeah. The, the, the famous great wave at Kanagawa is is evoked. There are several shots of of the bridge uh, over the. Um, Sumida River, which uh, also uh, evolved Hokusai. Um, and, and there's a moment that's just, it only lasts for about 20 seconds, where you see him drawing a man sticking chopsticks up his nose, um, mm -hmm. which is the, I mean, this film is set in the year that he published the first of his sketchbooks, which were very famously called the Hokusai manga. Um, and, and there are certain historians, not me, who trace the development of manga itself back to that moment. So, so you know, this is also the, the, the beginning of, uh, in terms of, what some people think the, the manga industry itself, with with him doing these very playful images um, and uh, kind of how-to books for other artists, which which actually only really had a big footprint with the public after he died. I mean, the, um, there was a much uh, they, they were much reprinted by his publishers after he died, and they, they even took other people's work and pretended they were his <laughs> to try and keep this this, this kind of manga franchise going. Um, uh, through the 19th century. But the film itself is, uh, as far as the director is concerned, is not about Hokusai at all, um, despite the title. Um, <laughs> and nor, is, nor is it about his daughter. It, it's, for him, it's a recreation of the work of his favourite manga artist, who is uh, Hinako Sugiura, who wrote the original manga on which this is based. And she died 10 years ago. And she left the, uh, the, the manga business 20 years ago. But uh, Keiichi Hara, the director, is obsessed with her work. He really loves the way that she will evoke the sights. Uh, sorry, not, not the sights, the sounds and the smells and the, the sensations of living in the Edo period. Um, because that is an incredibly difficult thing to do if you're, if you're doing something visually. Um, and, and he said uh, at the Glasgow uh, Q&A that that's what he really wanted to bring across in the film, is that... Everyone in Japan has got a story to tell about the Tokugawa period. It's, it's the Victorian period, it's the 19th century. That's where the antiques come from. That's where all the old books are. That's what all of the period dramas try and evoke. But uh, Hinako Sugiura would evoke things that no one else would think of, such as, what does it feel like to step in a dog turd on the bridge over the Sumida River? <laughs> what does it sound like to go underneath that bridge when the, the change in the, in the sound quality as the waters echo, that kind of thing? And she'd taken that kind of... Uh, obsessive 
attention to detail of the Edo period, uh, which is what he wanted to bring across. And in, in, and in that sense, I think the film is 100% successful in, in presenting a very different um, Edo period um, from, from the one that other anime and other books present. It's much closer in, in tone to... Um like if it's almost like if Takahata made Millennium Actress, it felt like yes. to me, uh, as opposed to you know Hara's previous film being colorful. People are like a lot of people didn't care for colorful because it's let's face it a very slow drama that feels like you know a Japanese live action film. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel like colorful. It but, feels like but actually Millennium colorful Actress. was also obliquely referential to the anime business. <laughs> that. That that uh, what, everyone wanted that, to kill themselves. No, no, that, well, actually, it's that. Um, but also, they, they they follow that tram line, uh, um, the ghosts of the tram line that used to be there in the right. film. And this is kind of this big mission they want to follow this tram line. But that is the tram line that connects all of the 1950s anime studios. Oh. Um, and it's also where Hara lives, that area. So so that there is this kind of if if you are in the anime business, you recognise all these places. And then the fact they used to be connected, and the people who worked at that studio used to have to go two stops to get to to the next one. Is, is this kind of very sort of subtle anime industry reference. Um, I, I love Colourful. So I do too, uh, personally. Uh, it's a great film. Um, very different and certainly not like his, his work on Crayon Shin-chan, uh, <laughs> what kept him busy for 10 years. Um, I do think, however, that Miss Hokusai is not... I mean, like Colourful, Miss Hokusai is not a great breakout movie for him. He's not suddenly going to be wrapped on the shelves next to Miyazaki in The Virgin Megastore. Um, it, it doesn't have that mass appeal um, that, that might you know, give him a chance to, to do more mainstream films. Clearly left his own devices, he's just not a populist director. Yes, which is also fine. Right. Yeah. I'm fine with that. <coughs> I'm okay with that as well. If that's kind of work which comes out, then... We have so much pandering in this business already, I'll take some pure art. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of why we, we apply that kind of content as well, because obviously Miss Hawkeye is being released by Anime Limited. And it's why we, we chase it. We know it's not a Dragon Ball Z, which is done amazingly well theatrically and such. We know this film is not the same as that. And it will, like, we're happy to say it will get some theatrical next year, like at the beginning of next year, thanks to, of all people, the natural choice, the Japan Foundation mm. wanting to get involved. But. Oh, it's right, like, we it's took right it, up there, street. We though, took isn't it because we knew, like, we yes. recognised when we saw it, it was not. The normal choice, but like like Giovanni's Island before, which again was not like like was not a slam dunk, like cash success for sure. It's worth getting out. It's there. a very worthy film, like Giovanni's Island, like Colorful. Yeah. It's worthy, and it's good to have anime that are worthy, yeah. so that people don't think it's all tits and and, and tentacles. And like I mean, so for people who don't know, a license period for an anime film in particular is very often. You don't hear it exceed seven years, but you very rarely hear it go under seven years as well on the term. Uh, it's not a big controversial industry secret that that's just <coughs> a standard contract over us. Whereas the TV series may be between, depending on if you have to dub it or not, five to seven years for a term. Like, you may expect to recoup your TV series, and you might actually recoup it in the first month if you're doing exceptionally well. And you've done, you've, you know, mass, miss can't get hugely, but you're certainly aiming to recoup within a shorter period, depending on your outlay. For a film, you know you might well be spent, like, be making the money back for, f out of the seven years, maybe five of the years, to be honest, on a, a film, which is a challenge. But good films do tend to sell even small numbers of units 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you telling us this with regard to Miss Hokusai? Are you expecting it to be a long-term... Yeah, I think it's a long-term investment as yeah. a film. That's mm-hmm. what I'm, I'm getting at with it, is that it's, it's fascinating as well, because it, like, it, it ties in with Keiji Hara not being a... Like a popularist director left Absolutely. his own he's, he's filmed before. He's actually but, he's filmed before Miss Hokusai was live action, and it was a life of um, yeah. Kenosuke Kinoshita. It was a biopic, a live action biopic of of Kinoshita, who uh, I mean, very famously, uh, when when Seven Samurai was winning all of these accolades all around the world. Um, he couldn't get arrested in Japan. It was Kinoshita's 24 Eyes that won um, the Japanese Academy Award that year. Um, and it's fascinating to watch 24 Eyes, which, which for me is an incredibly irritating film about a bunch of little psychopaths who, who torment their teacher until one day they feel mildly bad about it. Um, but it, but it, it's very evocative of what the Japanese actually like compared to what we expect the Japanese to like. And, what we, um, you know, so, so, um, uh, and he's very keen on the work of Kinoshita. He, he, he uses a lot of his kind of setups in his films um, but he's clearly not aiming for money he's not the no. hack he he is trying to make the films that he wants to make uh, and doing very well at it so does that yeah. mean you're going to dub it uh, no oh. well actually we discussed this like I discussed this with IG personally when I before I licensed it because for Giovanni's Island we were one of the pushing main primary forces behind them dubbing it because I was like well it's a kids film yes for starters even though the topic is hard this is the, the yeah. problem you're getting us into we can't program it for children's screenings because no. no one wants to take their kids to a film where Barely like where, it's great, yeah. where Grave of the Fireflies has a lot in common with it <laughs> um, and like like you know but like it still needs a dub because if festival wants it or if we want to sell it to a family audience as a historical piece yeah you need a dub yeah. but for this one I actually went in and went you know what because like, I, I saw a lot of the pre-final footage before it happened, like mm-hmm. scenes before they put the flame effect in, which took a long time to do, may I add, mm-hmm. in the fire, mm-hmm. and to, oh, to the, get the, it right. Yes, yes. They're fantastic. So they, well, there, there's, there's one, there's one yeah. shot that he told us a single animator worked on for three months, yeah. which and is that, her like, running through the streets. Oh, yeah. Obviously, because I've been visiting back and forth <coughs> over that period, I got to see beginning and end, most <coughs> fascinating on a different level, but... Yeah, like it was... I think the audience yeah. for this aren't going to have a problem with being foreign language. We, I, mean, I think also it wouldn't, it wouldn't vote the period so well, would it? Well, that, that's the thing we said. Was like what we said, accents would you use? Well, we said it wasn't even. We didn't even go that. I went Birmingham, like, I think. Obviously, Mancunian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was thinking for a wee bit of Scouse instead. Um, go for local like, talent, Glaswegian. But you're, you're a Scottish company. Yeah. Why not push that? <laughs> why, not, why, not get, why, why not get a Ouija accent? Oh man! All right, Okasai, Bobak. How are we doing? No, like, I mean, like, the joke, like, the thing that I said immediately was, look, whilst Giovanni's Island, it was in the absolute, like, advantage of the film to have a dub, it will actually, I feel it would not only be a waste of money, but it would be in your detriment to have a dub for Miss Hawkeye because there is no way you can localise yeah. a chunk of the features, and quite frankly speaking, it's not your standard audience. Yeah. Also, also speak, speaking as someone who was hired on uh, on Musashi because I was the only person who could pronounce the names, <laughs> uh, it would be very difficult to find voice actors well, who weren't going to mispronounce. Yeah, you just get like terminology. You get oh, I may be correct, but you get oh no, or hey now. You can you can see where it would go. Basically, Absolutely, you know, you've got a names. lead character whose name is three vowels in a row. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, in Japanese, it's four vowels in a row because it's, it's O U. 
E at I. Oh, so yes, yeah. her name is Oi. Good luck with that, Dubby. <laughs> if nothing else, the, the outtakes on that one, which people would be like, we should include them because they'll be hilarious, would all be glaringly cringeworthy yeah. mispronunciations, mm-hmm. which they found funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's. Like, it's yeah. like, there are companies out there who genuinely say they won't buy the film unless there is a dub. Fine. But I said, well, like, I mean, you could kickstart it. That is something you could do. But I feel that that is, again, like, that... I doubt that very much the target audience for this film in the West will want to hear it in English. That's what I said. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, there's no... I certainly don't. I, I mm. like, I, I would rather funnel money into it as an amazing 120-minute making of. Which we are subtitling and saying. Which is far more interesting. Don't ask the public, just do what we tell you. Do, do it. Funny enough, I wasn't going to do what you tell me, I was already doing it. Can I just jump in as well as like possibly part of the target audience. I mean, like, you guys obviously are all industry. Um, I'm not so industry. I, I know you guys, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of more of a lay person. But I'm like, I'm thinking, I, I've worked for Andrew when he's been selling at shows and stuff. And there are a certain type of customer who come up, they run their eyes over all the pretty packaging, and then they'll pick up the film. They'll pick up Giovanni's Island. They'll pick up Garden of Words. And they'll be like, this is the one. This is the one I want. And that's all they'll buy. And then they'll leave. Because they've heard about it, or they, they, they just want that. And that's probably the market that you're going for with Miss Hawks. I, I, I'm going to get it. You know? I mean, I, I love the film, you know, I gave it both my votes, you know, so, you know, I was very, very happy that it, that it won, but, you know, I'm just thinking that's, there are, there's a, da- there's a danger of whitewashing, not whitewashing, sorry, um, painting every anime fan with the same brush. Not everybody wants the same things, and I think that is... The, maybe I want to say older, but oh, that's going to annoy the uh, the younger fans. Sorry, younger fans. You know, <laughs> I think there's a general correlation between people when they get older and they want a bit of more educational, maybe interesting, serious subject matter. Taste change. Yeah, quite yeah. quite frankly, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm still going to watch Dragon Ball Z. Don't don't get me wrong. Let's face it. This is a sort of film, and I think it's the only film that I've seen in this festival that's like this, where you. Like I see it, and I want to write essays. Mm. Yeah, like, no, I said the same, didn't I? Yes. I, want to, I want to study it. I want to know about the symbolism of the bridge. Mm. I want to know about just everything to do with it. I just it's want to like, learn more about it well, in general. Yes. And, and, for, and for those of you listening in black and white, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Scotland Loves Anime uh, Festival brochure this year is also a magazine. Which is amazing, Which, by which the way. has 12 <laughs> pages just on Miss Hokusai. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting it to... to uh, Influence people's opinions, particularly uh, because a lot of people that didn't pick it up at the festival. I um, think didn't expect to look so nice. We were putting together the brochure, and there's lots of articles about various films that have been in the festival, and some things that Anime Limited are doing, and there's a, a couple of other references to other companies' products as well. But Miss Hokusai got uh, 12 pages of stuff because there's so much to say about it. Yeah. Um, we've got articles about about Hokusai himself, about her, about his manga as well. And if you look on the uh, Anime Limited website. There's also an article which we didn't include about his pornography. Um, <laughs> blog.alltheanime.com for anybody wondering. Uh, so I think if they found the podcast, they probably know where the blog is. You'd be surprised. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. you Don't let us down, guys. Come on. And there's, and there's also an interview with Keiichi Hara. So we have actually yeah. privileged the content. But, but, the, but the reason is, is that if you write about anime for a living, this is the kind of film you want to be writing yeah. about. Uh, you, you don't really want to be talking about episode 400 of Pokemon, you want to be talking about this. <laughs> Although, I mean, if anyone, if anyone <laughs> yeah. would like to write about episode 400 of Pokemon... Please do, do not send it to Anime Lewis, <laughs> we do not care. But no, like, the interesting thing about it as well is, like, the, there was very much a kind of a dual purpose on our... Like, there was dual purpose between what the film studio expected from articles about Miss Hawkeye and what we 
felt was correct. We we argued our corner and we got our way in the end, in just the through end. me not shutting up yeah. uh, <laughs> mostly you? about it. No uh, but, but the point was was that they they expect because Miss Hawkins like everyone goes in going it's a biopic. It's not a biopic. It's like. It, that's not the point of it. It's not like it's not an in-depth analysis of his his prints or her prints. It goes the other direction, based off the man- like he focused mm-hmm. on the manga, which was yeah. not but, a thing. But, but like, this this is an incredibly difficult thing to do, and it comes yeah. up a lot with with sleeve notes about yeah. what the production company will approve for the sleeve notes. Uh, we have an interest in having interesting content that is not in other countries' releases to try and make the content in this country more interesting and more saleable. Um, and naming no names, the, or you often run into difficulties where, for example, I worked on one uh, piece of slavery once where I wrote what I thought was a pretty damn good article about the original creator of the novel something was based on. And the studio threw it out. They said, we don't want to hear about the novel, we want to hear about the anime. And in this case, it was the other way around. They said, we don't really want to talk about Hokusai, we want to talk about the manga that this is but, based on. Although, you can't yeah. get the rights to show any pictures from it. And uh, well, we, we felt, though, was the opposite. Well, not the opposite, we felt that... <coughs> But the important thing about it wasn't that you were going in, it wasn't a primer for watching the film. It was a primer for people, because very often people were picking up the magazine after they'd seen the films and such, or they were taking it home and going to read it later. The point was that you had it on hand to go, I want to know more about the world that was actually going on at that point. My intention with the articles in the the brochure about Miss Hokusai was to give the the local audience as much of the general knowledge that a Japanese audience would have. Um, not necessarily about Hinako Sugiura, but about Hokusai, because there are all kinds of things in there which, if you go in cold, will will mean less to you. Mm. Um, so that that was that was quite deliberate. Uh, and, and and in my introduction to Miss Hokusai as well, I, I I don't know if you noticed, I very carefully tried to manage the audience's expectations. I said this is not a biopic. This is uh, this is Keiichi Hara's very personal investigation of, of the work of Sugiura, and I, I did that to, to, to try and kind of head people off before they went in expecting something else. Because I will admit, when I saw Miss Okusai the first time, I was actually disappointed that I didn't get the film I was expecting, and that was my fault entirely uh, for you know for having preconceptions before I went in. But like, it still nonetheless came out. Like pretty nice, and like speaking of the magazine, by the way, it's sold out. Like it's not sold out; it's, it's free. free. It's, um, <laughs> it's it's out of stock at the film house. That's now. how good it is. Um, when we ship them, like normally you ship the venue about five hundred, six hundred of your programs. Like and this is like the, the fourteen page, like regular, like smaller program size. These guys had one thousand copies of the the magazine, which is a full magazine, like small is magazine. Ninety five pages total. Uh, Ninety six. Ninety six. Sorry, the the princess would not have been happy with me on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like, and like it, it, they cleared all one thousand out. Like it's, wow. but like, and we, we who knew fans and free stuff. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> we distributed a lot, so there's a lot of people who saying they picked up the program at MCM Comic Con, for example, in Glasgow, mm-hmm. because we delivered a whole pallet load of them there. <laughs> and the, the, the organizer of MCM actually came by the stand to see me. I was like, Andrew, these. Are these to give away? Are they, are they, are they free yeah. to give away? And like, you sure you let me? You not just left a pallet around there? Like, no, they're better you to give bless away. Him, he was, he was for pro- asking. Proper shocked. Like, you, you you want to just give these away? That's like, the kind of thing yeah, you get that's... charged ten pound for at a gig. Yeah. You know, and I found them left on the seats. I'm like, I'm taking that. You know, like someone's ten quid down the drain. Like, no, these are great. These are great. Good lord, things are expensive in this country. Well, <laughs> gig, gig brochures. Oh yeah, they are. <laughs> well, Justin, since you're here just now. Yes, yes, I am. 
Tell it like I mean we've like we have had one other American in this year on our podcast, which was uh, Stephanie Shea. Oh, she's um, she's a lovely person. She is, and we got some some one side of a perspective on things. But you're way more involved with the the US industry in a different way. Can you tell? Like I know you introduced yourself briefly, but could you tell us a little bit more about what you do and how you came into to anime first? Oh boy, uh, I've been in business almost. Let's see, 16, 17 years now? Oh, sweet Jesus, how old am I? <laughs> um, let's see, so I started Anime News Network because I was a fan and I'd been doing, just to completely date myself, I've been active in the VHS fan sub scene. Um, and I started Anime News Network back in 1998, uh, the month I graduated high school, um, because there was nothing like it. At that time, we had to rely on uh, crap shill magazines that were put out by anime publishers that were very obviously ads for their own product. Uh, they actually passed off as a cover story a Ranma one half fan fiction at one point. Come Ooh. on. Um, <coughs> and so, and it was either that or the news groups, which were filled with you know rumor and completely unfact checked. No one knew what was going on, and just even in terms of new releases. Uh, let alone anything else happening. So I started an anime news network just as a clearinghouse for that sort of thing. But I was also 18 and didn't know how the hell to run a business. So um, I moved to New York for uh, film school and I, I kind of let that go. And then um, Christopher McDonald, uh, who currently runs the site, took it over and uh, turned it into what it is today. He hired me back a few years ago. Um, in the meantime, I went through film school. I worked at Central Park Media, which was a was a uh, one of the bigger uh, anime distributors in the states before their timely demise, um, and uh, then at a really kind of shit TV network startup that blew through three million no thirty million dollars in three years with little to show for it. Oh, uh, so then I. After applying for refugee <laughs> status, I was back at Anime News Network, and uh, we did some streaming, and then I kind of branched off and did my own thing uh, with uh, DVD and Blu-ray authoring, which it turned out I was pretty good at. Uh, so now I do uh, Blu-rays and DVDs for about five or six different publishers, Anime Limited being among them. Really? I didn't know about that. <laughs> Shock. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I knew that part, obviously. You did? Obviously. Um, it's funny you should mention burning through, like a, a TV <clears throat> network burning through 30 million with No Tomorrow. I actually have a, a direct quote from, I'm not under secret to, to keep it from him, but someone I know at a, like a certain Japanese company, um, like a spoiler, they work with like big stompy robots a lot. Which narrows it down nothing. Basically, said, <laughs> <laughs> one thing the top just sat there going, Talking about international endeavors to, to promote that said series across all the you know what? It's incredibly easy to spend a million, like a million dollars. Like they said, just looking downwards, I was like, well, what what did you spend it on? And they just they couldn't really even tell you basically at that point. It's like it's scary to think it just scales. I think after one million upwards. Well, I don't know. The, this network, the stupidity was just unparalleled. I mean, we had ads running on the NASDAQ billboard in Times Square at Christmas before we had coverage in New York City. <laughs> that seems like a little I've, bit of a I have been here. There was a, <laughs> a, there was a group called uh, IMAF, the International Mangrove Anime Festival. Um, 
many years ago, uh, who um, they, they tried me to get and do some events at, at their event, but they weren't prepared to pay for it. And they'd taken out adverts in national newspapers to promote this event before they knew what the content would be. Um, and I found out how much they paid for their adverts. And I, I said, I could go to Japan, I could buy the rights for Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors, I could translate the entire film, subtitle it, print 10,000 DVDs, put a £10 note in every box, and walk along the Thames giving it away for free, and it would make more of an impact on people's perception of anime than the money you've just spent on these adverts. I mean, I'm not, I'm not down on advertising, I'm just down on stupid, stupid ideas yeah. for it. Um, and I, I think there's, there's, um, there's some obvious temptations among people who don't know what yeah. they're doing to just throw money at advertising and make it work. Yeah. I get very angry with companies who spend money on a new logo instead of getting product, uh, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So are you alright, Jeremy? Yeah, you seem yeah. to be having a bit of an episode. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I thought I was going to sneeze, but I didn't. Oh. Okay. Uh, I thought you were just really moved about logos. So, so just, I mean, my, my bank, yeah. you know, is not giving me a better deal on my account, but they've made a new logo, yeah. so that's alright. Hey. That's going to help. Uh, and that, that kind of thing annoys me because I, I want to see that money going to the people who actually do the work, not, not you know, a bunch of nerks. Yeah, it was yeah. funny because, like, I was in college while I was working at Central Park Media, and so I learned quite a bit there as my first real job. And John O'Donnell, the head of the company, was ex-Sony. Uh, he was like the youngest division president of Sony in the company history uh, when they started their home video division. And he ran that ship. It was an easy company to make fun of because it was a real janky operation. We, the walls hadn't been painted in 15 years. The, the carpet was coming up and had, you know, had probably bits of raw sewage in it from the time the sink backed up. Mm -hmm. um, it was, oh yes, and everyone was uh, sitting on those like white plastic molded lawn chairs. <laughs> um, <laughs> were you also all basically naked and putting small white powder into the packets? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like what we're going on. Sewing shoes to your hands. <laughs> no, no, rather we were editing promos for hentai, so. Well, <laughs> <laughs> about the same level, I uh, mean, we'll get you into so, hell. Talk us through that. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to go there on this. I have curiosity. What is it like cutting a promo for hentai? Like, I mean, like, that is a question I think is relevant to... I never thought the English language would read this stage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and folks, this is why this episode has an adult rating. Um, okay, so my first week there, I had seen hentai before. I'd seen Orotsuki Doji. I'd seen, you know, Venus 5. I'd seen a bunch of stuff. Um, and I thought I could handle this stuff. I sat down my first week there, or maybe, like, after one or two weeks there... And they're like, okay, today you have to cut a trailer for Magic Woman M. Uh, Japanese title was Maho Shoujo Meruru. And I'm like, Magic Woman M, I've never heard of it. And they're like, yeah, it's hentai. And uh, the, the QC people have been complaining left and right about this one. This is the worst thing we've ever seen. I'm like, great. I'll, I'll, uh, so I sit down and i just watching over the footage about to start cutting. And then I really feel like cutting. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what type of cutting are we talking about? <laughs> um, it really took, like, I had to talk myself out of not quitting. And this was a dream job for me because, like, I, I wanted this job so badly. I got the job very serendipitously. And, but, I, it was just, it, this was 
a horror. At this point, the tentacle porn had long since, you know, become passe. This is where it was just getting really misogynistic, really just gross and rapey and, and just horrible. And this one was bad even for that, by that standard. And I just, I just held my nose and I did it. And then the anime got worse and worse and worse. Finally, I was cutting night shift nurses. Oh. Um, a, a, a show which is famous and he's even mentioned in the anime encyclopedia uh, for, for having a, a menu screen that's spattered with human feces. We're very proud of that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> 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 when you decide to sell the DVD spat. <laughs> the, the thing with Night Shift Nurse is, is that compared to the rest of the hentai, that one was actually fun because we can just... <laughs> We could just turn off our brains and become like 12-year-olds laughing at poop jokes. <laughs> I still love a poop joke. Although, to be fair, Magic Woman M, the DVD producer, uh, awesome guy named Ross Lefko, um, for Magic Woman M, he came up with the brilliant idea of doing a commentary track with the characters mm -hmm. as if they were porn actors. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> so you had, you had lines like, I can get that groove on with that old guy around. His ass smelled like my grandmother's basement. <laughs> <laughs> or my, my personal favorite, that load is actually mayo and oatmeal. <laughs> See, now you're kind of making me want to find this. That's, that is an amazing way of like trying to, to add like not to add value to pornography. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, but it's a shame that it's not going to be, like, it's not, Easily, like, I, I imagine there's some people looking it up at this moment. And, and you know, that's where we, that, that's where you, yeah. you take a turn because then once your soul dies entirely, you can have fun. Yeah. Uh, right, Andrew? There's, there's, there's a title. The title. Ding. Uh, so, like, I. Uh, we were doing the uh, the new Orotsuki Doji, or the Orotsuki as we called it, yeah. and that was the first hentai we'd ever done in 5.1. Hmm. Um, so I came up with... <laughs> it, means, it means something different in hentai. <laughs> <laughs> well, I came up with this idea of, you know how the, the old uh, DVDs and Blu-rays, they had the 5.1 test where you could check you know, each channel. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to make one of those. And so like, I got this little stick figure icon, um, you know, put it, put them in the center and had you know, the channels like... First, you know, test each speaker with with static. Then test each speaker with background music from the show, and then just start with the porn clips from each one. And I had the little stick figure in the middle just slowly start wanking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, it wasn't it wasn't just me? Uh, Tom Whalen, who who was uh, in charge of the dubs, he he quite famously had way too much fun with the hentai. Uh, he, after a while, uh, they would, because they didn't care. Yeah. We could do anything with these things. And most of the hentai we gave to this awful, awful uh, dub guy named Kip Kaplan, his work, his studio audio works. Um, so you got lines like, you must be my brother, right? I must be your brother? <laughs> yeah, literally that level of line reading. I, I have had to watch many of these. <laughs> I remember the, the there was one there was one which I think was, was one of his where, where I actually said it sounds like the characters are declaiming the script at each other like Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I wish to have sex with you. Well, if you ever sat in on one of his sessions, his level of directing was no, you're not being, you're not fucking, you're being fucked. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my last performance review. 
Um, but, you know, we did get act- voice actors who were way too into it. This one woman would literally bring a dildo into the booth with oh her. Oh, my God. Um, okay. No, no, just, just for the no- mouth noise. It's okay, good. Uh, <laughs> a bit okay, well, I, I, uh, speak, speaking as a former dubbing director, um, we, we have tried these these options, and, and a, fi- a finger works fine. You don't need uh, a dildo. Quote you know, that. Children, <laughs> quote that. Jonathan Clement says a finger works fine. <laughs> Maybe that could be the time. <laughs> Look, an actor wants to go method, you don't argue. Fine, yes. Um, never go full method. <laughs> so, um, yeah, towards the end of it, he was just, uh, Tom was just rewriting these. He took it over from Kip because Kip also gave us such wonders as, you know, Garzy's Wing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Garzy's Wing was a, was a tough sell from the beginning, though. Yeah. It was. It's a shit anime that was is made hysterical. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Tom got got these, hold of these scripts and he got, he went to town. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had... You had incidents like he did this one show called Temptation, which, you know, there's this scene where this girl is just making this ridiculous O face. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he dubs it with, you know, dialogue like, Now I want you to cluck like a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> now cluck like you're laying a really big egg. <laughs> and so the O face became, <laughs> Um you had uh, night shift nurses. I'm. This is probably too graphic, even for this. Oh, podcast. you know what? Go for it. Go for it. Okay, we've gone. We've gone this far. Yeah. Well, <laughs> night shift late. nurses. If you haven't heard of it, is a show infamous for its um, rather excited depictions of um, feces. Uh, so there is this one scene where you know, girl kind of lets it all go over, over the floor, and the doctor who's doing it to her. Gets down and slurps it up. Oh! Oh. See what I mean? You can actually laugh at that. All the people watching the podcast at lunch, I'm not even sorry, you warned. (laughs) Um, And just remember to warn them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll just be Jeremy going, Jeremy, (laughs) this is an explicit podcast. In in the sound of a whiskey shot going down. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, the the Japanese. Dialogue that came after that is he get the doctor who had done this to his nurse get uh, gets up and says you really must learn to feed yourself better this all tastes like instant oh oh that was the line that yeah you're that's, saying. The line. <laughs> that's the line um, <laughs> so when 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 we dubbed it that became wow somebody had Mexican food last night <laughs> oh. Oh. better or worse we just don't know <laughs> uh, and so there's this great story because the um, the the uh, voice actor for the doctor uh, was in the booth with Tom and the other yucking it up doing this and um, the actor's like decades long friend comes in who dubs normal anime um, <laughs> comes in and they're like Tony Tony you gotta hear this they hit, they hit the space bar to play the loop and Tony's look on his face is just abject horror. <laughs> and the voice actor sees his face and just immediately goes to this really, really dark place. Just like, oh my god, oh my, <laughs> what was my, my life? <laughs> and, and Tom's like, no, no, don't go there, don't go there. Got to finish. After it's done, go there by all means. <laughs> uh, I saved one relic, one one amazing relic from those days. We actually had an. Uh, they actually bothered to make a full audition reel for this 
horror of an anime called Stepmother's Sin. Oh, um, one, of, one of my all-time unfavorites. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it was animated mostly with After Effects afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's bad. Um, and so it's just surreal listening to this real, just like, this is so-and-so reading for Yusuke, take two. Oh, come on, Mom. I want to see you piss. <laughs> <laughs> That guy is somewhere in the world today, not knowing that we're talking about. Right. Uh, using witness protection in Glasgow. Yeah. You know, me, me sitting there making the trailers, there's this awful, awful show, and I know you read about this because I looked it up, uh, uh, called Mama, we released it called Mama Mia. Uh, and it, this show looks like it was made in Windows Paint. Like, everyone's this awful gradient. You know, all the, they, it just looks like crap. Um, so. I'm just, I'm sitting there and trying to muster up any enthusiasm for cutting this trailer and I'm finally like, I know what I'm going to do. So I just use that clip, you must be my brother, right? I must be your brother? Then I cut to black, put in this sort of like really dark industrial music and just insert some flyby text. In this anime, Yuichi is going to fuck his mother. <laughs> 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 Like, five o'clock, that's me, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> <Punch God's on. laughs> um, so yeah, that was what it was like working on hentai. And, and it, there was, like, that office was just no holds barred. Like, we were making the most, we were doing dramatic readings of, like, hentai manga. Yeah. It, was just, it was just a horror. But at the same time, we were also working on Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> and we're... We were working on, I, like, I was filling my like, uh, lifelong dream doing a DVD version of Project Aiko, which was my first yeah. anime, and I, it was surreal, and then, yeah, we'd have to do some awful, awful Japanese straight-to-video exploitation film. Um, we actually had to work on a, uh, has anyone here heard of Kei Mizutani? We tried to make her this B-movie queen, and she's, you know, just this girl with big boobs and, you know, not particularly attractive to my eyes, but whatever. Um, she had an idol video, a Grab Your Idol video, which um, literally just her standing around for 40 minutes uh, doing nothing except showing her boobs to bad library music. It, it was truly terrible. So we're like, what do we do with this? So there's this one scene at the end of one segment where she just puts on a bunch of lipstick and just smears it over her face. It's just the least attractive thing I've ever seen a woman do. So like, take a screenshot, put it up on your cubicle wall, just keep on trucking. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was Central Park Media. Yeah, the hentai market didn't survive that much longer after I left, which, you know. You were keeping it afloat, obviously. Well, you, you, know, you were a key influence. Was that, was that the internet coming in, or was it like, um, pardon me, the internet's a bad Was that move past it? Yeah, let's move on. Um, but like, was, was it, like, what, what happened to Central Park Media for people who don't know? Because there's a large amount of our like people listening in who won't have a clue. Well, Central Park Media, they were the biggest anime distributor in the US for the VHS era, and they actually had a deal with uh, Manga UK to dub stuff together. So we would get, you know, all these uh, cla now classic London dubs like, you know, Project Echo, Venus Wars, um, 
Dominion Tank Police, and then we get the U.S. release of, of those dubs. And so that actually, most of my early anime upbringing had weird faux-English, uh, faux-halfway-between-British and North American accents. It was very surreal. I didn't know where the hell that came from. Um, so we, you know, Central Park Media was like this giant nexus of anime distribution, but as ADV came along and as the other big guys started coming up, uh, they found themselves increasingly priced out of the market, uh, and hentai was keeping us afloat. Hentai was being distributed in the States through porn shops, and porn shops started going away with the internet, and also porn shops are also really tough road to hoe because they were, they took a huge chunk of wholesale price. We're talking, you know, 70, 80% would be the store's share because, you know, they would have to invest things like in things like bulletproof glass and, mm. you know, all the other wonderful things that came along with uh, <laughs> renting a porn shop, shop running a porn shop. Um, it has an industry we've yeah. not discussed really. <laughs> well, it's, it, those, those are gone. Those yeah, places are gone. Um, so yeah, the, so that, basically you, you lost your distributor. We lost, yeah. we lost any sense of storefront. People started, you know, finding their porn online and not having to show their face. Um, and nobody feels bad about pirating porn. No, because uh, you know, frankly, the people that make them are kind of shitty. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that kind of fell through. And so Central Park Media was left, you know, kind of going for table scraps at the anime buffet. And uh, then the financial crisis hit Musicland, which was the biggest retailer in the States, went yeah. under. Um, and Bank of America, which had a huge uh, hold on CPM as, uh, as a debtor, uh, decided to recall a loan and force the company into bankruptcy. Do you feel that, um, like speaking of like Musicland and such, like being priced out of a market, mm. Do you find it interesting, especially now? Because, like, for, for people who aren't aware, like, we all feel, and we've always said, like, I think all, like, all of us here have said before, be that anime is kind of like a cycle. And, like, the thing is, what happened then with, like, CPM being priced out of the market is exactly the same thing you're hearing from, from people now in the US and UK, English speaking in particular, where the market is fighting for for titles all over again and there's like this kind of outpricing the market sort of situation how did it it, it, it does feel really upsetting to see because we're seeing a lot of the same things happen today as happened in the heady days of like oh five oh six but at the same time uh there's not so much of an obvious uh place for everyone to just eat it uh the the anime industry in those days was being propped up by a bunch of really dumb things. Um, you had this giant license speculation bubble, and a good 70-80% of those shows were not recouping at all. Uh, I mean... The Heat Guy J. Yes. Let's, got, let's talk about Heat Guy J. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we've worn that joke into the ground. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we were very... It wasn't all that common, but shows were getting up to $75,000 per episode which is insane. Um, but then again, Full Metal Alchemist, I hear, got something similar and recouped. Uh, but that was also Full Metal Alchemist. He Guy J was not a hit. Um, but you had, you had shows like Rumiko Takahashi Anthology selling in the double digits. Same, same here. Same yeah. Here. And, you know, it, you also had companies pushing huge amounts just in this short-sighted bid to make their uh, sales numbers. You know, we had sales guys 
pushing huge numbers of units into retail channels um, to say, hey, I sold X number of units this month, ain't I a great guy? And then them all getting returned. Uh, and in the end, those retail returns are really what, what destroyed everyone because how that works is you sell this huge chunk of inventory to a retail chain and they just sit on it. And then you're, you, get, you get the money or credit or they, they never pay you. Um, and then they're just like, your next month's releases come out and they're like, hey, uh, rather than pay money for these, we're just going to return some of these and you can, we can use our, our store credit, huh? huh? And depending on how big the retailer is, you really can't, you're in no position to argue with them. So you end up just spending years giving them new inventory for nothing. And uh, or just having to refund them, which you know just destroys your bottom line. And in the American market, are the returns actually returned or are they destroyed? Uh, they're actually returned. We uh, a lot of those units ended up in liquidation when the bubble finally burst. Uh, you had right stuff blowing those discs out at literally a dollar per unit. Um, you had uh, have you are you guys familiar with Big Lots? It's a huge um, liquidation chain in the states. Uh, you would have Bondi discs showing up for three dollars per unit at Big Lots everywhere in the country. Uh, but yeah, it was it was clearly and then those dollar you you get all of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex for like twenty bucks, uh, and nobody's making money. Everyone took a hit on that. Um, and then fans go nuts buying all these. The fans that are left, they're still buying discs. Sorry. And they just go, and they're like, oh, well, this is how cheap anime is now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the point where it devalues. Like, and this is the same, actually, ironically, in France, of all places, with the same situation. Several companies, about the same time, like, just as a knock-on effect, went bankrupt or started to go out of business. Now, Bandai was one of them. It happened about a year or two after... A year or so after Bandai Entertainment in the USA slammed its doors, basically. It wasn't so far away, but what happened was, however, like, uh, however it happened was a lot of the, the stock left the hands of Bandai in a, what appears to be a 100% legitimate transaction. There's nothing to question me otherwise, but it was a company very much known to deliver briefcases of cash or, like, for this kind of stuff to get a hold of it. And the, the result is, even now, because they had so much stock in the warehouse for some titles, you can still buy, like, Ghost of Michelle Sandland Complex for, like, the whole thing, season one and two, so 52 episodes or so, for 20 euros. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's the same in the States. There are still some things that they just made yeah. so many units of. Yeah. And, of course, everyone's trying to get to Walmart, and Walmart has, like, you know, 20,000 stores across the U.S. You send five copies to each one, you, you've made 100,000 units. Yeah. And, you know, those all come back, and you're just fucked. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it was a really, really rough time. I'm... Yeah. There, there was a, a, a brief uh, rescue in the in the English business when uh, during the London riots. Um, oh yes! Oh gosh! The warehouse was burned down. I yeah. Yeah. remember I that. Uh, was that which, which was which was great for King of Bandits Jing, <laughs> 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 because nobody had bought it. And it was all sitting there, and they got to claim it back on their insurance. Well, so, they, yeah. this is the thing. This is where as well. It was great for a company leaving the industry. Not for one to want. Not for ones who wanted to stay, because the thing was what. What happened in the end, and there was a lot of fighting, it's still ongoing for people I know still who run the top-level stuff for distribution and such, who are still going in for legal meetings with Sony, who are still going in for 
like like basically they're still in litigation for for where is this money coming from coming back to refund mm. people and like um like and basically yeah like so if you left what happened was they would pay you what they felt the replication value was. Any Only money for King of Bandits, Jing. Well, yeah, that one is, but here's the question. For something like Banzai, we, we were one of the pioneers when I was at Banzai in Europe for collectors packaging in the UK. We were the only people at the time. You know, like, we were well ahead of our time on that for collector, for collector stuff, but the trouble was, because it was all replicated in France, and they'd already shredded their accounting at this point, basically. How do you... Like, it's very hard to source... A, something you printed five years ago and had stock in that warehouse to say well this was collectors and this cost us mm. X times more than a standard Amory so there was a lot of discussion I'm not sure they even you know, I, I'm not sure they even cared, I think there was a degree of let's collect our checks and extricate interestingly with King of Bandits Jing like it would have been a period where ADV was apparently like seemingly on the surface gone at that point, I think that was even when Lace stopped distribution for them, I believe. Like, because everything had disappeared into that legal quagmire. Mm. But what we found out a lot later was that, like, that company still existed. Hmm. So, someone must have received a paycheck for all those <laughs> things which have gone missing. I can draw you a list of suspects. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, I can draw you, like, it, it's nothing sinister there, but what's interesting is because all of us, to the best of our knowledge, I assume it was the same for you, Justin, it was a surprise for me, certainly, when we saw that legally speaking the entity that was ADV film still exists no that wasn't a surprise to me because um, nah. the way US the way US bankruptcy law works um, you know you can enter receivership and not and most companies can't have any problems but with you know the way anime with any licensing contract is structured you you go into receivership and you lose the rights to everything and there's no yeah. hope of ever recovering so you know these companies will do you know they'll jump through every hoop to uh, to to still be active in some way. Well, and on paper anyway. Like I'll, I'll give you a great example: Media Blasters, oh, wow. literally shut down by the New York State Department of Finance. Mm -hmm. Like they they pulled the plug on them because they for not paying their taxes, and they just kind of quietly kept going, which is punishable, I think, by jail time. Actually, <laughs> um, but they coming for you, Media they finally, it finally came out at a Tokyo Anime Fair that they were, uh, in fact, no longer actually a company, and they lost most of the, their entire catalog. Uh, John Cerebella is a fighter, if nothing else, and he immediately reincorporated in New Jersey um, and uh, started his company afresh, but he lost almost his entire catalog, anything that he didn't partially own. Mm. Um, so, you know, it doesn't surprise me one bit to see these companies because there's they're scrappy people run by very, uh, they're scrappy companies run by very aggressive yeah. people. And yeah, if you threaten them, they will pee on you. They will pee on you in a non erotic manner. Uh, so, the majority of Central Park media is anti <laughs> Right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but no, like I. But to answer your original question, the, what's going on today is not anywhere near that dire. I think there there was such a perfect storm of everything going wrong at once and just everything going to shit. There's simply not as many points of failure anymore, and there's a lot more of a diversified means of income that I did. You'd have to, and the economy would have to just 
crater yeah. in a very significant way, and several companies would have to leave the business all at once for for the same thing to happen. But you don't feel then that with like I mean like they're not the only company by far, but like pick the highest profile one. With, uh, like, no, I was going to say actually uh, Crunchyroll with people like the churning group funneling, mil- you know, money is not an object for people who also co-fund Fox and such, you know? Right. Like, I mean, money is no object then. It's actually been cited that this race to the ceiling just now is a Baldrick-esque from Blackadder attempt to have a cunning plan to get the competitive... Like, each of them, it's not just one company. Like, all of them think they can spend more than the other on getting their competitors out of the industry. Mm. But do you like do you reckon like I mean you know that market better than we do here? Is that something where like people like the Chernin group will eventually go, what are we doing? You know, like let's just strip the, the company we bought for parts. You know, all of them not I'm using them as an example but I'm not wanting an answer about one company. Do you think these big investors are going to go stripping for parts of war? Well, we only know what's going on behind the scenes with Crunchyroll. We don't really know what's happening so, uh, in such detail with the others. Um, but I will say this. Uh, anime is kind of at an odd cr- intersection now between the content bubble, which we know is a thing. Look at how much content is out there, both anime, live action, you name it. There's an absurd amount of content being made yeah. right now. And the tech bubble. Uh, both of which people are have entered into what economists call irrational exuberance, and it, it it's uh, it, both of those are going to end at some point. Uh, the question is, what are they going to do once that exuberance ends? In terms of in, investing in digital streaming infrastructure, upon which anime now depends. I don't see that going away, do you? No. That, that's how, that, it's clearly the future, it's clearly how people are yeah. going to uh, consume media going forward. Um, and people, nobody's going to shut off the disc spigot at any time soon either. No, but I was going to say, yeah, to quantify that, what you like, what I think you're probably getting at, and you'll tell me immediately if I'm wrong, I suspect, is that the, st- the mass media distribution will change to, to digital. But the discs will keep going because when you're building a collector's market and you care about the product, there is always going to, you know, it, it might be difficult to find 20 or 50,000 people like who are going to go into Walmart and buy a copy of their, their anime versus watching it online on, you know, funny.com, crunchyroll.com, you know, vista.com. I'm sure you already see it. You're already like, there. I mean, yeah, I mean, we are already, exactly, we yeah. are already there. But, like, it's, it's the same case that you could argue, um, Someone, I think it was actually uh, Jerome, of all people, posted about like some interesting stats of what he felt the collector's market in the US versus the UK was like. I'd be fascinated to hear stats behind that. But no the scale, the scale, well, exactly, the scale though broke down to a very low number of units. And he's not, like, he's not off. I mean, you could say there's reliably like one-tenth of the potential overall buyers in a market willing to buy collectors. Well, the the interesting question here is, because uh, I'm not sure how it is here, uh, judging by what I saw at the film festival, it, it might skew a little older, but anime fandom in the US is predominantly teenagers, yes. with, with a bit of spillover into the college crowd. Um, and then there are people like us who just never grew up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they can't, can't argue with that one. <laughs> uh, so really, the we're, first of all, mill- millennials 
I hate to use that term with a blanket judgment mm-hmm. statement, but it, this is true. Millennials do not are far less materialistic than the previous generations, uh, especially when it comes to media consumption. Um, there are collectors among them, and I do not want to discount them, but uh, these these people live a very compact live uh, media lives, and the younger you get, the more the, the less likely they're, they are to even own a television. That's true. Um, so we don't have anything. Uh, we You really can't sell them physical media collectibles. They have nothing to play them on. Um, So it's kind of insanity. You want to serve the collector's market, but realize it's just such a small chunk of what you could be doing. And I think everyone has kind of bought onto that and because the numbers uh, for streaming have become so huge and the revenue from it is so great that I think everyone's kind of realizing it's like, oh, the old system was leaving a huge amount of money on the table. Yep, like I think that's very true. I think the companies who haven't done that yet are beginning to realize they're a bit like you know, it's getting close to the line on the party for this one. You know, if they don't adapt soon, that you hear all these crazy claims as well. But oh, well, we're gonna have to have our own platform soon. I'm like, well, really? Because you'd be better working around. I, system. I agree. I tried to run. I, I tried yeah. to build a platform. It didn't work well. Uh, I've been there more than once as well. Like yeah. you, you, you were there it. with one. I was there for one. <laughs> like we were there, we were there together on the, the front lines for one of them, and you mm-hmm. learn very rapidly that like that the amount of it, like once you've tried it once, like at <clears> least <throat> you you know the, the difficulties involved. But you're right. It, like if people like Chernin investing into a platform, and not just them, you know, Netflix raising rounds of debt. To acquire content for a platform, they are building obsessively. Their, their technology is incredible from a, a geek point of view. In fact, oh, they're, they're going to they're moving to a, a model where, like, I don't think it's giving anything away. A model where, which is kind of the future for media ingestion to mm-hmm. an extent. And I won't go into too much detail in case I accidentally am violating something there if I go further. But per like this, the, what they have want to do rather than moving towards and what the cinema industry does are actually very, very similar. And that is fascinating because those two, like I've never seen those two link up before, but it would make, it would actually make life a lot easier. Mm. Um, except for, for anime where subtitles are the key issue. But right, and their subtitle support blows, uh, it, frankly. It is not ideal. So yeah, bas- basically things are, it, anime is already there. We're already at that point. We're just waiting for the rest of the mainstream to catch up. And I think that's why Turning Group even invested in Crunchyroll. Yeah, and then, like, so, I, I think, yeah, like, the, the world while there are some similarities to the CPM. Yeah, here, it's such say, a different... It's such a different situation. Yeah. I mean, so, basically, like, anyone who's conspiracy fearing that it's the end of anime, uh, no. Like, no. If, if we've survived the worst, like, the worst possible combination of Storm, like, back, like, back then, I don't think... You know, these are salad days. There will be bad days ahead. Just enjoy them. Stop worrying so much. That. That's, <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a good way to wrap up, actually, as well, I think. Yeah, this has been quite the podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to it because it's been a blooming pleasure being here for it. And uh, thank you to everyone for, for being involved. It's been great. I'd love to have you all involved again sometime if you'd like it. I appreciate time zones might be a bit no. busy, but <laughs> if you're up for it, Justin, would love to have you back on. Love to. Yeah, I, I personally can't make it again. It's too far away time zone. Partridge time is different to, to regular time. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. It's alltheanime.com. If you're on social media, we are all the anime on Facebook and Twitter. 
go to blogs.alltheanime.com, all the info is there, links to respective blogs and other sites if people are interested will be there as well. And until next year for SLA, I guess, Andrew? I'll be in the bar, motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> Signing out! <laughs>